are coming to this passage as we've been going through what is, I consider and many consider, one of the most difficult passage of Scripture to interpret, to understand. There are numerous and various interpretations that are fall under the, the, uh, the uh, orthodox banner of Christians that all link arms and advance the gospel together, and yet we come to this passage, and I've been humbled once again in studying it this past week, because, for instance, one of my favorite um, old dead guys is Charles Spurgeon. You see, I throw a lot of his quotes out there, and I love him, and, and so far I've been tracking with him. He's been tracking with me, and we're like, yeah, we're going good, and then this, t- this week he went off on me, <laughs> and he interprets it different, and I'm like, Charles, what are you doing, man? <laughs> J.C. Ryle, another guy I have a lot of love and respect for, who I've learned much from in his books. Different interpretations. And the interpretation varies around the whole chapter here we're in. Is it fulfilled or not? From our perspective today. We know from Jesus' perspective, when he spoke these words, it was a prophecy. It was in the future. And there is then various debate on different interpretations. For instance, Charles Spurgeon said this about our particular text today. He said, Our Lord appears to have purposefully mingled the prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and his own second coming, so that there should be nothing in his words to satisfy idle curiosity, (laughs) but everything to keep his disciples always on the watch for his appearing. These verses must apply to the coming of the king at the last great day. There may have been a partial fulfillment of them in, quote, the tribulation, end quote, that came upon his guilty capital, and the language of the Savior might have been taken metaphorically to set forth the wonders in the heavens and the woes on the earth in connection with that awful judgment, but we must regard Christ's words here as prophetic of the final manifestation of, quote, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, end quote. There will be no further need of the sun and the moon and the star when he who is brighter than the sun shines forth in all the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. And so I read that and I say a hearty amen to what Pastor Spurgeon is saying, and yet I understand the passage a little differently. So I'm approaching it once again with humility. I almost feel like I've been very apologetic, and I'm not apologizing for what I believe, but I'm also understanding that good people have had various views on this. So I I listened to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson on this chapter, who has a brain 20 size times the size of mine. (laughs) And he had this, uh, you know, he was, he was pointing to various fulfillments all in this chapter. And so as we approach it, let me say this once again, that Bible study should never lead to the pride of, I've got it figured out. Um, And yet, the scripture is clear, and so we should seek for clarity. And so I'm not going to come across today, I hope, telling you I've figured it out, but I am going to share with you and teach to you what I believe is the interpretation of this passage, and I'm going to say that with open hands, realizing that Smarter men than I have different understandings. In the context of where we've been in Matthew, the temple will be destroyed. Jesus has told his disciples that. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. And back in verse 3, the disciples asked a question. All right, well, when will these things be? Tell us, Jesus. 
When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so the rest of the chapter is Jesus answering their question. And in, to sum it up, here, here's my interpretation. When will these things be? Which things? The destruction of the temple. Well, it'll happen within this generation. We'll talk about that, next, I believe, next week. Within 40 years, and here's the sign. When you see the abomination of desolation, we talked about that last week a little bit. You don't, we don't have time to go into that today, but you can go back and listen to that. But when you see this catastrophic event, run. In the meantime, before then, there's going to be lots of signs. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and a lot of crazy things. False Christ, false messiahs coming. That's not the sign. Don't be deceived by those things. Don't be fooled by those things. Don't be afraid of those things, but endure all the way to the end and preach my gospel. And so as far as when will these things be, I see Jesus answering the question by saying within 40 years, but regarding the coming and the end, the end of all days, the end of all time, I believe in verse 36 he answers it clearly and says, I don't know. <laughs> no one knows, not even the Son of Man. And so much of this passage, from my interpretation and understanding, has already been fulfilled, including what we'll talk about today. There are different, again, opinions. There are several possible answers to the text today. One is that this text talks of a future uh, tribulation period immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. It's usually identified with the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, uh, so seven years in duration. Um, there are other theologians who are liberal theologians who are not Christians, I believe, who have concluded, well, Jesus was just wrong about this whole passage. He, he misprophesied. He thought he was right, and Jesus didn't return in the 40 years, and so he missed it. Other interpretations abound. Um, there are some who interpret this whole passage and say, uh, I would call an extreme version of what's called preterism, which speaks of the past, who insists that the, the second coming of Jesus was, in fact, his return in 70 A.D., and that was it. His second coming has been fulfilled. That is a heretical view. They would say Jesus is not returning again bodily, physically. And that is false. That would not be considered within the bounds of orthodoxy. Again, there's a lot of them here, but here's where I'm going to go today. I would hold to a, a, a moderate view of what's called preterism in this particular case, that verses 29 to 31 are not a literal description of the second coming of Christ, which will take place, which is as sure as the word of God. But rather, this particular text this morning, it's a, it's, a, it's a description of the fall of Jerusalem in biblical terms. The description of the destruction of the temple in biblical terms. It wasn't the second coming, but it was a coming, if you will, of Jesus in judgment. And so, is Jesus coming back a second time? You better believe it. But these few verses we'll study this morning, according to my interpretation, don't speak of that. What I would say, if you don't see it that way, be a Berean. Study the Word of God. Don't just take my word for it. Study the Word of God. And I'm going to do my best to preach it humbly, but please hear me humbly. 
and understand that one sermon doesn't allow me to visit every issue that we're dealing with here. We really should have actually some classes on this. And ultimately, what I'm after today is what I prayed for earlier, that each and every one of us will treasure Christ so much more through this text. So three points this morning that speak of my interpretation. The first one is this, the surety of judgment. We'll see the surety of judgment. We'll see the sign of the Son of Man, and we'll see the salvation of all people. But first, the surety of judgment, verse 29. Jesus says these words, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he had just spoken of this, this great tribulation that the people would be going through, which, which I told you last week I see as the, the, the events surrounding the, Rome, the Roman army coming in and destroying Jerusalem utterly and ransacking the temple, fulfilling what Jesus prophesied by literally tearing it apart stone by stone. Which an interesting thing to speak of that prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, there was a lot of gold in the temple. And when the Romans set fire to it, they originally weren't going to tear it all apart. But a lot of the fire was so hot, it melted the gold, and it was basically into the stone structures of the building. So the soldiers went in and wanted the gold. So they tore that thing apart, literally fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Stone, one stone left upon another. So Jesus says, immediately after that, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so I understand if we come to this text with, with an understanding or interpretation that all of these things are into the future, it's very clear and easy to understand, well, that's yet to happen, right? Because if I look up, the sun's still shining, at least it was about 200 days ago in San Diego. <laughs> it hasn't been shining for like three months now. But I think the sun's still up there, right? It hasn't fallen out of the sky. It's, you know, last I looked, the moon was still giving its light, and there were still stars in the heavens. So what is Jesus saying? You're saying, Brian, if that has already been fulfilled, what, what does that mean? And I believe what it is speaking of is how God would come in judgment against the covenant breakers of Israel. He told them he would judge them. Deuteronomy 28. Read that passage. There were blessings and curses. And so I, as I come to the Bible, I want to come to it simply, and I want to come to it taking my presuppositions and throwing them away, taking my traditions and throwing them away, and just read the Bible clearly and simply, which the, the, the best way to, to read and understand, interpret the Bible is biblically. What do I mean by that? Scripture interprets Scripture. How do you understand Scripture? Learn, number one, the, the three principles of biblical interpretation. Do you know what they are? I've mentioned them in the past. Anybody remember? It's context, context, context. <laughs> three principles of biblical interpretation. It's all about the context. The Bible interprets itself, and when you come to Scripture, I hope your Bible has little notes on it, little, little letters and, and footnotes that will reference you to others. Don't just not read those. Find out what there are. What is going on here? Jesus is actually, when he's in verse 29 speaking, he's actually quoting Old Testament Scripture. He's quoting from Isaiah 13, which was a prophecy that Isaiah delivered against the king of Babylon declaring the prophetic destruction of Babylon. And listen, if you go and look at every one of the references, I, I wrote them down in your notes there, but go look at every single one where it speaks of 
cosmic activity like we see Jesus speaking of in verse 29. Sun's not shining, moon you know, is, is stopped, you know, falls out of the sky or whatever. Anything like that where they're speaking of, of cosmic uh, collapsing solar system, it's always referring to the destruction of a nation. Every time. And so Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 13. Let's read some of that so we get the context of why is Jesus pulling this up at this time. He says in verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land and from the wet end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. You see, as we read this, it's, it's not exactly land. It doesn't always land on us as, as Americans in 2023 when we read such. We've got to understand, this is prophetic language. This is apocalyptic language. We talked about that last week. Apocalypse isn't speaking of the end of the world. It's what we think about it in our modern context of English. An apocalypse was a revelation. It's an uncovering. And the prophet's eyes were uncovered to see certain things. And here Isaiah is getting his eyes uncovered to see things. And he writes about it poetically. He writes about it apocalyptically in his poetry. Babylon is going to be destroyed. Verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. The day of the Lord. There is a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that's coming. But there's many days of the Lord throughout Old Testament history. And it always spoke of judgment. God will judge. Verse 7, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They'll dis be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They'll be in anguish like a woman in labor. They'll look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Verse 9, behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Verse 10 is what Jesus quotes. For the suns, excuse me, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Jesus here is speaking to a people who are saturated in Old Testament language. Old Testament concepts. Old Testament imagery. The things that where we open our Bibles and we read them and we're like, what? It just flies right over us. They lived in this from little babies up. They understood and they grasped such language and ways of speaking. And so when Jesus spoke to his disciples of the things to come, he's using the, the, the vocabulary of the Old Testament that they would instantly recognize. And if we are actually to understand the meaning of, of this text before us today, we have to read and interpret them through the biblical Old Testament lens. And so in the Old Testament, this language that we just read about in Isaiah, it's, it's portraying 
not what's going on in the, in the actual sun and the moon and the stars. It's, it's portraying what's actually happening on the earth. Things like natural disasters, political upheaval, the, the overthrow of nations, turmoil within nations, all of these things are often described figuratively using the terminology of, of cosmic disturbances. This, this ongoing and, and unsettled state of affairs that was turbulent am, among earthly world powers is in the scriptures portrayed symbolically by reference to these incredible events happening in the heavens. So this astronomical phenomenon Jesus is speaking of that the prophets would speak of is being used to describe the upheaval and the overthrow of earthly kingdoms, dynasties, as well as, well as just great shifts, changes, great moral, spiritual changes. Adam Clark, one commentator, wrote this. He said, in prophetic language, Great commotions upon the earth are often represented under the notion of commotions and changes in the heavens. We see such language throughout scriptures. Here's a few more. You've got a bunch of references you can look up but in the destruction of Egypt when Isaiah was prophesying about that. He wrote this in Ezekiel 32.7, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now everyone believes that that didn't happen literally. The, the, the sun didn't go out over Egypt. But the biblical prophets are using such language to describe, yes it did. <laughs> How so? The nation was destroyed. In verse 15 of Ezekiel 32, when I, when I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I'm the Lord. Another, that was Ezekiel, as Isaiah prophesies again of the destruction of, of Edom. He says this in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 34, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So we see this apocalyptic language being used, which again, it was used all the way back at the beginning. It was even the language of creation. Heavenly bodies were considered rulers. In, in Genesis 1, we see the creation and, and how God created the heavens and the earth. And when he creates in verse 16 of chapter 1, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And so if you were speaking about kingdoms and empires and rulers and thrones and dominions, Apocalyptic language, prophetic language would use things like the sun. And that has even continued on all throughout history. As different rulers have tried to identify themselves. Think of what, Louis XIV? What was he called? The sun king. He wanted to present himself as, I'm, I'm the center of it all. It revolves around me. 
And so, biblically speaking, horrible events were seen as a destruction of the cosmos. That's the way they would say it. We would, in a similar way, say things like this. When you're running into the worst of times in your life, my world has fallen apart. And so, verse 29, I interpret, I see this as, as just a stock in-trade Old Testament prophetic language for national disaster. And I'm arguing here that Jesus is not predicting that there will be strange astronomical events are going to occur. He's predicting the judgment of God on the Jewish nation. He's saying Israel has become Babylon. And just like I'm, I'm quoting from Isaiah 13, 10, of the destruction of, of Babylon, and now I'm saying this is what you covenant breakers have become. And you will be destroyed. And they were. Judgment was sure and certain. Secondly, the sign of the Son of Man. How do we understand this? Verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Many look at that passage and see very clearly the second coming, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And understand, again, some of my greatest heroes see it that way. I want to argue a different understanding for you to consider. Literally, verse 30 reads this way in the Greek. If you were to translate a literal translation, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then will mourn all the tribes of the land, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here's how I understand this passage, and I'll explain why. Jesus was not telling his disciples that he would appear in the sky. Rather, he told them that they would see a sign that proved that he was in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. That truly all power and authority and glory and dominion had been given to him. He is the King of kings. He rules and he reigns. This is what Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2. In verse 33, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the Messiah, and He's the Lord. There's no other Lord. There's no other Savior. There's no other Master. There's no other King. And His ascension to heaven proves that. He's fulfilling Psalm 2 right in front of your eyes. Those who would witness the destruction, the devastation of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem would see the sign of Jesus' enthronement when they saw Jerusalem's destruction. In other words, here's how I understand this. The sign of the Son of Man being enthroned and vindicated in heaven 
is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple on earth. It, it is the sign that appears, not, not the Son of Man that appears. What does the sign signify? It, is, it signifies that the Son of Man is in heaven. He's exalted, he's vindicated, and he is now enthroned at the right hand of God. What about the coming? Well, in this, really not that important, but this particular word is not the, the, the word parousia that we use for the second coming. But I understand, again, just as I did in the first, uh, verse 29, is he referencing something? Where in the Old Testament do we see a coming of the Son of Man? Well, it's clear to me that verse 30 is a clear allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It speaks of a coming of a Son of Man, but it's not a coming to the earth of a Son of Man, which will happen, but these verses, I don't believe, are speaking directly about that. It's not a coming to earth from heaven, but a coming to God in heaven in order to receive vindication and authority. Again, it's Psalm 2. It's, it's God in heaven laughing at the nations and the Son coming to the Father for the vindication and, and asking for the nations. And the Father gives him the nations as his dominion. This coming refers to an event where the authority of Jesus is vindicated over the covenant-breaking Jewish establishment that has rejected him. They hated him. They didn't want him. They killed him. Let's read the passage together. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The prophet Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This, there's no earthly picture that can compare. But we had a recent coronation over in that little country across the pond from us. Where the pomp and the circumstance of, of the king, Charles, and walking down, and he came to be crowned. And that's kind of the picture of what Daniel is seeing here. He'd just come off the vision of the four beasts. And we won't get into that, but, but speaking of these nations and the nations that God would conquer and destroy. And out of that arises, is now this vision of this one like a son of man. Do you understand now why when you read the Gospels, why the Pharisees got so angry when they saw, or when Jesus talked about himself as the son of man? They knew exactly what he meant. He's saying he's this guy. This guy that comes into heaven comes before the Ancient of Days, God, the Eternal One, and He's presented before the, the, the Ancient of Days, and what happens? What happens is what Jesus said was going to happen in Matthew 28 before He commissions His disciples. All authority was given to Him. Look at verse 14. To Him was given 
dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is Daniel seeing in this incredible vision in the night here? Daniel is seeing the, the victory, the coronation of the messianic king. And the kingdom being given to him. And, and, and that, that ought to give us so much hope. That ought to give every believer hope in a world of, that just seems dominated by so much evil. Jesus reigns. He has all authority. He's working out his plan into history. Jesus references a, a very similar thing when he's standing at his fake trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the others, the religious leaders. We're going to study that here in, in, in a few months in Matthew 26. Look at verse 63 of Matthew 26. Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's a clear, clear question, isn't it? How does Jesus respond? He said to him, you have said so in your words <laughs> but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven he's referencing Daniel 7 that guy that Messiah that you're looking for that's me that's me he tells the high priest and the other members of the Sanhedrin that they will see his coming Certainly they're not alive today. So what is Jesus referring to? Is he suggesting that Caiaphas is going to witness the end of the cosmos? The end of the world? Or that he's going to look out the window one day and see a human figure flying down from the clouds? I understand this as a clear reference to Daniel 7 that, that Caiaphas is going to witness all of these unique and strange events that follow Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to heaven. The rise of this ragtag group of disciples, uneducated men, and yet they had been with Jesus. And they go out claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And all the events that would, would rush us toward the final clash with Rome in which... Jesus will be vindicated as a true prophet. And all through it all, Caiaphas is going to witness events which will show that Jesus wasn't mistaken in his claim that he is the Son of Man. It'll be clear. They'll see it. They'll know it. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. He's the true representative of the people of Israel. He is the one in, in whom and, and through whom the covenant God is acting to advance and establish his kingdom. And so Jesus is coming here, using that word. His coming to God the Father in heaven is the sign that he is vindicated, that his authority has been established. We also see that this will be greeted by mourning. This was predicted in Zechariah chapter 12. Jesus is once again, not this whole few verses, it's full of Old Testament references and quotes. 
In Zechariah 12, verse 10, the prophet writes these words, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a first, over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, let each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Okay, why do you read all of that? Because I believe it's important in what it links to what Jesus is saying in verse 30. R.T. France, great commentary on Matthew, he explains it this way. He says, all the tribes of the earth is better translated all the tribes or families of the land. Those words there, the word tribe, obviously, we can see it speaks to a group of people. And we think all the tribes of the earth, we think global, everybody, but that word earth is the Hebrew word ge, excuse me, the Greek noun, uh, translated earth is, is ge, and, and it can refer generally to the tangible land, the ground, the earth, so I believe it's clear he's speaking about the people of Israel. And so this coming is, in verse 30, it's, it's not a physical, physical appearance by which Jesus returns to earth in my understanding. Although assuredly, and most assuredly, that will occur at the end of time, at the appointed hour. But rather, I understand it to mean that they will see him in the sense that they will understand. In the sense that Hebrews calls us to look to Christ. How do you look to Jesus. How do you keep your eyes on Jesus? One of my favorite phrases, you'll hear me say it all the time because I'm telling myself to do that all the time. What does that mean? I don't physically have my eyes on Jesus. We understand it means my focus, my understanding. And so they will see him in that sense. They will perceive that he is the vindicated and enthroned king. They will see that everything he said is true and right. And so in the destruction of the temple, the rejected Messiah is vindicated as the ascended Lord. And in that he's shown to possess great power and glory. Point three, and lastly, the salvation of all God's people. Verse 31, it says, and he will send out his angels and again, it's more cosmic language, but if my interpretation is true, I would say that this word angels has the word that is used several times throughout Scripture. It should be better translated as messengers. I believe it refers to human preaching of the gospel, not winged spiritual beings. He will send out his messengers. What's 
one thought, one commentator said this, I thought it was kind of cool, that he said, even if we apply this to angels, it would then refer to the supernatural power which lies behind such preaching. <laughs> That's kind of cool thought to think that there would be angels here right now, serving and ministering to his people, attending to the preaching of the word. He'll send out his angels, his messengers, with a loud trumpet call. I see in this trumpet call a reference, again, an Old Testament reference, an allusion to the means by which the Old Testament jubilee was announced. You're familiar with the jubilee year from the Old Testament? Every 50 years, the trumpet would blow and the land would sit. No crops, no planting, no work. Rest. All of the debts that the people of God owed were released. If you got into trouble financially and had to sell your property, and, and, and you, 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 after 50 years, the year of Jubilee, you got it back. How cool is that? What a beautiful concept. And the Leviticus 25 speaks of the, the trumpet. You shall, verse 9, you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return his, to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. I, I, I see the point of its use here is to declare that with this destruction of the temple, with the end of the Jewish age, the ultimate jubilee year has now arrived. Jesus is using imagery from the year of jubilee in Leviticus 25 to speak about the final stage of redemption, which is secured, finally secured, once the temple vanishes from history. Loud trumpet call, and then they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, Biblical language to talk about a global thing. All points of the compass, the four winds, east, west, north, south, everywhere, from one end of heaven to the other, from horizon to horizon. He sends out his messengers because it's, it, this is speaking of the evangelistic activity that would spread throughout the earth, which did spread throughout the earth, bringing salvation not just to one nation but to the world to all peoples, to, to the Gentiles, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all languages. It, it's speaking of the great theology that I learned back in Sunday school at six years old when I sang, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. You guys know what I'm talking about, or is I throwing you way off, right? <laughs> All y'all grew up in Sunday school. Everyone had to learn Father Abraham. We'll stick around after the service. Maybe we'll do it together in a big circle. <laughs> Here's the amazing thing, that God will gather his elect, his chosen ones. I don't know if when you read about election in scripture how we can simply not just stop and let our jaw drop 
it should never take us casually. God has chosen me to be one of his own. And in understanding that, and when we do understand that, we'll understand the privilege and the blessing of becoming a messenger of this gospel that we have embraced. This, this good news, this salvation that's for all people. And we would want to take it to the world, we would want to take it to our neighbor, to our family. We wouldn't be casually content to, to sit and do nothing. We would want to spread the news. We'd want to spread the news of this salvation. I love this passage in, in Isaiah. We've talked, read a lot of Isaiah. Let's read another passage, Isaiah 61. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet Isaiah is, is going to declare this amazing uh, truth about our salvation, which ultimately is going to be fulfilled in Christ. And in verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To what? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to, all, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. What a beautiful description of what we've received in our salvation. That God has given this gift not just to a, a tribe of 12 nations across the globe, but to all of, all of the globe. And I'm one of them and so are you. It's an amazing thing. How does this happen? How does this come about? How does he bring this salvation? Through preaching. Through proclamation. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. What good news? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Christ has won the victory over everything that's against us. A victory over Satan. A victory over hell. A victory over death. That Jesus announces because of His, his perfect work. Because of His personhood as God, as the God-man. Not just any man. The God-man. The man of uh, the, the Son of God who has come to this earth, the only man to ever live a perfect life, and to do the work required for our salvation of, of making of himself a perfect sacrifice, shedding his own blood upon the cross. That blood was accepted upon the altar of heaven for the forgiveness of of all of our sins. You've heard it a million times. Don't ever get tired of it. And this salvation is for all people. 
He was buried after he died. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He was vindicated. He brought judgment upon the nation of Israel. He destroyed the temple. He sends the messengers out to the world, and they've been doing it for the last 2,000 years. How do we respond? How do we understand the beauty and the glory and the power of this Messiah? We should know that judgment for sin is sure. Judgment for evil is sure. It's coming. Don't play around with God. If you're sitting here this morning and you not sure if you're a Christian, I mean, if, if, if you were to die today, where would you go? Would you be with God in heaven or would you fling wide the doors of hell? Well, I've been a pretty good person. I've done some pretty good things. Not one good thing will get you into heaven. Not one good thing would bring you to faith in Christ. It's His work alone. It's His grace alone. Brings us to faith. Don't flirt with sin. Don't play around with God. Repent. And believe. We should also be Understanding that Jesus has given, has been given all power and eternal dominion and a kingdom forever for all people. That as believers in Christ, we live a life of jubilee. The ultimate deliverance of God's people and the liberation from all indebtedness has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, how should we respond? We should count it the great, greatest of privileges to be his messengers, to take this good news to the world. And as, as we do so, we should do it with great joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart People characterized by, listen, a fundamental joy and a certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. So how should we respond to this Christ? Let me just close, invite the music team up. And as I do, join me before the communion in responding to what you might think is a Christmas song, but is not. Think about what we just read and talked about. 
joy to the world, the Lord is coming. Let earth receive her King, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. This is the response to the risen Christ, to the ascended Christ, to the Christ who will return. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and flocks and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And he rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So Lord, as we come to you this morning,